This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life. And this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on him is not condemned. But he who believeth not is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Before we begin our study this morning, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we are so grateful for your word that you have revealed to us. We're grateful for the insights that it gives us into who you are and who we are, especially the instruction that we receive and how we should live our spiritual life. But above all, in this study that we're engaged in in Matthew, we come to understand God, your plan of salvation for us. We come to understand our Savior. We come to understand who he is and why we believe that he is the only Savior of the world. Father, we pray that we might be encouraged because as we study about the calling of these original disciples, we recognize that that calling continues for a disciple is nothing more than a student, a learner, and that this is the challenge to each of us to continue as the original disciples under the feet of our Lord as he teaches us through his word that we might be faithful students, faithful disciples, and faithful in our studies, faithful in our learning, and faithful in our application. And we pray you challenge us as we study this morning. In Christ's name, amen. As I said earlier, we are in our uh, continued study in the Gospel of Matthew. The first three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, are referred to as synoptic Gospels, a term that refers to the fact that they are somewhat synonymous, okay? There is a similarity between them, and they cover the life of our Lord in uh, much the same way. There is a close relationship between them. Uh, the Gospel of John, though, is much different. It, it records many events that are not recorded in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and when we put them all together in a chronology of the life of Christ, one of the things that we discover is that in the other Gospels, in the Synoptics, pretty much the first year of our Lord's ministry is left out. It doesn't, uh, aspects of it do not fit within their uh, purposes as they are writing the Gospels. I've explained that the, the Gospels are not written as biographies per se. They're not written as histories per se. They are, uh, they are historical. They contain biographical information, but they are, as it were, good news tracks. They are written to explain who Jesus is to different audiences. Matthew writes to a Jewish audience. Uh, Mark, 
Uh, Mark and Luke both write to uh, different Gentile audiences, as does John. John writes much later after the destruction of the temple. And so there are different features that, that come out within each of these Gospels. So in the last few weeks, we've gone through Matthew chapter 1 up through 4.11, which is pretty much chronological. In Matthew chapter 3 and 4, uh, down to 4.11, we read of John the Baptist coming on the scene as the uh, forerunner, the front man uh, to the Lord Jesus Christ, the forerunner who announces that the Messiah is about to come on the scene and his message is to the Jewish people to repent, that is, to turn back to God for the kingdom of heaven is near. That message, repent, applies to two different types of people. One would be the unbeliever who needs to turn to God for salvation, and the other is to believers who have drifted away from God and who need to turn back to him in terms of especially obedience as it's defined uh, in the Old Testament under the Mosaic Law, an obedience that wasn't uh, to gain salvation but was their, their pattern for their spiritual life, both in terms of observing the ritual of the Old Testament but also in terms of personal application. They were to love the Lord their God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength and love their neighbors themselves as our Lord summarized the, the commandments into those two. So John the Baptist calls them to turn uh, back to God because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then as he is out baptizing and people are coming to him, baptism was uh, for to signify their repentance and their identification with the kingdom. One day our Lord appeared and John did not feel he was worthy to baptize him, but Jesus told him that he must baptize him in keeping with all uh, righteousness, and that was to identify the Lord Jesus Christ in terms of his messianic ministry that he was uh, about to uh, begin, his uh, identification of himself as the promised Messiah from the Old Testament, and so John baptized him. Immediately after that, Jesus was taken by God the Holy Spirit to uh, uh, led or impelled by the Holy Spirit, as we studied last time, into the wilderness, the desert, for 40 days of fasting, and then he went through a period of uh, of a day or so of three uh, tests to give evidence of the fact that he was the Son of God. The temptation, as I pointed out last time, was not to see if he would sin, but to show that he would not sin and that he was therefore qualified to be the Messiah. Now, as we come finish that, what happens in um, the Gospel of Luke, as that concludes with the uh, information about angels coming to minister to Jesus, then verse 12 begins, Now when Jesus heard that John the Baptist had been put in prison, now, that gives us a chronological note, but if you were to take the time to look at the Gospel of John, you would note that at the end of John chapter 3, verses 22 and following, we see that Jesus and his disciples go into Judah, Judea 
and uh, they baptize, and at the same time, John is also baptizing nearby, and those who are coming to Jesus become more and more, and those who go to John the Baptist less and less. So by the end of John chapter 3, John the Baptist has not been has not been arrested yet, and he is still uh, uh, freely engaged in his in his ministry. That his arrest does not come until um, after those events. So um, all of the events that take place in John one through four take place before John the Baptist is arrested. That covers a whole year. So what I want to do is just take a snapshot of two events that occurred then. Now, there are a lot of things that, that you see. There's the, um, we'll start off just looking at the uh, baptism uh, of John and his, again, recognition of Jesus as the Lamb of God, the initial acquaintance of Jesus with these uh, uh, five disciples in John chapter 1. Um, we're not going to go into details, but this is followed by Jesus' first trip back to Galilee. He goes from the Jordan up to Galilee where he uh, turns the water into wine at the wedding of Cana. Then he goes from Galilee south again down to Judea where he uh, observes the first Passover. At the first pa- Passover, there are many who believe in his name. He performs many signs and, and, and wonders, signs and miracles. In chapter 3, he has a conversation with Nicodemus where he uh, instructs Nicodemus, the, uh, a, a teacher of the Jews. He was probably the head of a Jewish rabbinical school. He was very famous uh, w- within the Jewish uh, um, uh, context. His name was probably not Nicodemus. That's a, actually a term that refers to him as a, uh, a ruler over the people. It was prob- probably a title given to him, a rabbinical title given to him, and then that is followed by the information about John and Jesus' disciples both baptizing in, uh, in Judea at the end of chapter 3. And then Jesus heads to Galilee, uh, but he goes through Samaria, and that's the episode of the Samaritan woman, which is recorded in Acts chapter uh, Acts chapter 4, and then in Act, I mean, excuse me, John chapter 4. And then at the end of John chapter 4, we're told, uh, in verse 43, now after t- the two days, that is in Samaria, he departed from there and went to Galilee. For Jesus himself testified that a prophet has no honor in his own country. Now I want you to remember that verse because that's going to connect to something we close with this morning in Luke chapter 4. So I just want to pick up on a couple of different things uh, to remind us of what is happening during this first year without going into every detail, but just to pull it together a little for us uh, before we get back into the progression in Matthew 4. Now, Matthew 4, 12 begins, Now, when Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, he departed to Galilee. That's what happens at the end of John chapter 4. And then in 4.13 we read, and leaving Nazareth. So he went back to his hometown to begin with at Nazareth, but something happens in Nazareth. And what happens there is he is rejected by his hometown crowd at the synagogue there, which is the second thing we'll look at this morning. Leaving Nazareth, he came and dwelt in Capernaum, 
which is by the sea in the regions of Zebulun and Naphtali. So what we're looking at this morning takes place in between this brief summary that Matthew gives us. Now, in John chapter 1, we're introduced to Jesus as the Word. John introduces him to us, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. This is in verses 1 through 5. Then we're introduced to a second man in John chapter 1, verse 6. There was a man sent from God. Uh, whose name was John, and now we're introduced to John the Baptist. And that John uh, then is stated to be a that he is not the light, that is uh, the Logos, the Word, the incarnate Jesus, the incarnate second person of the Trinity is the light, but John is a witness to the light, that is his role. And then in verse 10, uh, we read, he was in the world. That is, again, a reference back to the word, that is Jesus, the Logos. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. And then we come to three significant verses, John 1, 11 through 13. He came to his own. That would be the Jewish people. This was his initial mission, was to bring the message of the kingdom to his own, to the Jewish people. He came into his own, and his own did not receive him. This is a summary statement by John. What we're going to see is there are two responses to Jesus. One is a response of rejection. The other is a response of reception. We're going to look at an example of the reception in John 1 and the rejection in Luke 4. In verse 12 we read, but as many as received him. So there were those who did not receive him and then those who received him. To them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. Now I want us to zero in on that word believe, because what we see here in the structure of these verses is that the word believe is used synonymously with receive. Receiving Jesus is just a metaphorical way of talking about uh, believing in him. The word believe is used some 95 or 96 times as a verb in the Gospel of John. The noun faith is not used. The verb to believe is used, and it is never qualified. You never have uh, tr- uh, qualifications or adverbs like truly or genuinely or, or um, uh, uh, sincerely. You just have the word believe because all that is required of salvation is to simply believe Jesus is the Messiah who died on the cross, paid the penalty for your sins. There's nothing else that goes along with it. It is faith alone. Now, there are some people who think that that faith has to be of a certain quality, uh, but it is not the kind of faith that saves. It is the object of faith that saves. It is the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ that, that saves, that is the object of salvation. Often, and I understand the dynamic behind this, often we look at some person who has committed certain sins and we say, oh, how can that person be a Christian? Well, folks, we're all sinners, every single one of us. 
And sometimes we commit sins that shock us. Sometimes we commit sins that that we've become rather uh, used to in our own lives, and so they don't shock us too much. Uh, but we all commit sins. Every single believer, from the uh, from the person you most admire in their Christian life to the person you least admire, all of us are sinners. That's why we have uh, promises like First John one nine that if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So there's forgiveness in the Christian life, and we can we can go forward. So we can't look at somebody's life and say, oh. Boy, that person, look at what they did. They must not be a believer. Well, the best we can say is that they, they're not living like a believer when they do that. They have yielded to their sin nature and committed sin. But that does not mean they are not a believer. Uh, being a Christian is simply a matter of faith alone in Christ alone. And that's what one of the things we'll see in this pattern this morning. So those who have the right to become children of God are those who believe in his name. That idiom in his name indicates uh, a pers- who a person is in terms of his person and work. John one thirteen then goes on to say that they're born not of blood. It's not their racial or genetic heritage as the Jews thought. If they were just a descendant of Abraham, they were automatically in. Nor of the will of the flesh. That is, it's not a product of their own uh, their own will as something meritorious. Um, that is, or, uh, in terms, and the flesh there would relate to their own genetic heritage as Jews. Nor of the will of man. But of God, God is the one whose plan of salvation it is, and God is the one who uh, creates a new life in a person when they trust in Jesus for salvation. So th- this is what I want to look at this morning, is that there are those who receive and those who do not receive, the, those who reject. And we'll look first at the first response because that's what we see in the context. Now, the context, we come back to John. This is John uh, down baptizing near Jericho on the Jordan River. But this is some at least six weeks, 40 days have transpired when Jesus is fasting and then he's tempted. So at least six weeks have gone by since Jesus came down and was baptized by John. We will see in Jesus, uh, I mean, excuse me, in John's description of um, of Jesus that he heard the Father identify Jesus and he saw the dove descending uh, upon him from heaven in verse 32. And he says, I saw this happen. This was something that had obviously happened uh, at some time previously, not in these four days uh, that are mentioned in uh, in John 1, we have four days that come consecutively here. The first day is a day when the uh, uh, religious leaders from Jerusalem uh, send a uh, team to inquire of John who he is. Now, earlier in Matthew, just so you put this together, there was sort of an initial fact-finding group that heard the message that John's baptizing down on the Jordan and huge crowds are going down there. Uh, we need to find out what's going on. So they sent their initial investigative team down there to check out what was happening. It was at approximately that same time that Jesus came and is baptized. 
Then we have at least six or seven weeks that transpire between that event and this event, and now the religious leaders are sending out a um, a second team, and they begin to ask John specific questions. They want to identify who he is. So they come to him. We're told in verse 19, uh, these pr- group of priests and Levites came out, and they said, who are you? That's the first question. His first answer is, I am not the Christ. He is not the Messiah. Christ is from the Greek word Christos, which means uh, the same as Mashiach in the Hebrew. It means the anointed one, and is a term uh, for Jesus as um, as the, the Messiah. So John says to the first question, I'm not the Christ. So they ask him a second question. They said, well, are you Elijah? aware of the fact that the Old Testament predicted in Malachi 4, 5 that the uh, that Elijah would come before the Messiah. And they said, well, are you Elijah? And he said, I am not. That's the second answer. So they asked the third question, are you the prophet? Now, this term, the prophet, comes out of Deuteronomy 18, 15, where there is a prediction of a prophet that will rise up greater than Moses. This is, again, a messianic term. And he says, no. I'm not the prophet. Then they ask um, a fourth question. Well, who are you that we may give an answer to those who sent us? We have to go back and report. Well, who are you? And then he answers the fourth question by saying, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord. So he is quoting from Isaiah chapter uh, 40, verse 3, identifying himself as the forerunner of the Messiah. And so they then asked him a fifth question and said, well, why are you baptizing if you're not the Messiah nor Elijah nor the prophet? And he says that he baptizes, uh, and then he gives an answer of explanation of why he is baptizing in terms of his message, which, as we know from Matthew, is to repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. So that's the first day. Then we have the second day, verse 29, says the next day John saw Jesus coming toward him. And as he saw him, this is when Jesus comes back from the wilderness, he says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now this imagery would have been well known to the Jews. It's the imagery of the sacrificial lamb on the Day of Atonement, the imagery of the sacrificial lamb at Passover, and he is a lamb that is without spot or blemish, and it is that lamb on the Day of Atonement that is uh, that the, the the sacrifice that receives the imputation of the sins of the people, and so he is making this identification. It's longer. He will say it again in verse thirty six. Here it's a longer statement, and he is identifying Jesus as uh, the Messiah, as the Savior who will take away the sin of the world. And he talks about him, and in conclusion, in verse 34, he says, He is the Son of God. So John is very clear in identifying who Jesus is as his role was to be the forerunner and the announcer of the Messiah. Then we come to the third day. And on the third day, we see that, that, that John is now not before the crowd, but he's standing there with his two, with two of his disciples. And while he is uh, teaching them, now a disciple is a, the word basically means a student. Someone is a learner. And in the Jewish context, if you wanted to 
follow a, a rabbi and you wanted to be part of his school, part of his teaching, then you would be following him and you would be called uh, Talmudim from Lamed, which means to teach or to instruct. It also, in a form of the word, means to learn, where we get the word Talmud, a form of instruction. So Talmudim is the word, the Hebrew word for a disciple or a learner. And so they're the students, and they're with their teacher, John the Baptist, and um, they're out that day, and John looks up, and Jesus is coming toward them, and he looks at his disciples, and he says, look, the Lamb of God. And there's an implication there, and that is that they should follow him. And so the two disciples, verse 37, we're told, heard him speak, and they followed Jesus. Now, this is the group, as I've said, that is uh, receiving Jesus. We see a picture of the fact that they're accepting him as to who he is, but then they're going a step further and becoming disciples. That's important to understand that. The term disciple is not a synonym for believer. Uh, there are those who became believers, but they kept it secret. In John chapter 3, we're told about Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus at night, and we know that Nicodemus and another was a Pharisee, and another Pharisee named uh, Joseph of Arimathea were both believers, but they kept it secret. John chapter 12, verses 41 to 43 says, tells us that nevertheless, even among the rulers, that is, among the Sanhedrin, among the Pharisees, many believed in him. But because of the Pharisees, they did not confess him. And that implication there is to confess him, to admit that they are a believer. They kept it secret. They were uh, secret believers. But that doesn't mean they weren't believers. The text is very clear. They're believers. They're saved. They're born again, but they're keeping it secret. There are uh, perhaps many who uh, do that even to this day. Uh, they did not confess him lest they sh- should be put out of the synagogue, for they loved the praise of men more than the praise of God. Now, clearly, they have some motivation that's wrong, but they're still believers. See, there are some today who teach forms of salvation, say, if you're truly saved, you will make a public confession of your faith. If you're truly saved, you will live a certain kind of a lifestyle. If you're truly saved, you're not going to be embarrassed about Jesus and keep it secret. But that's not what John tells us. John tells us if you want eternal life, you believe in Jesus as the one who died for your sins. That's one issue. At that instant, you're born again. You become a new new creature in Christ. But then you have another decision to make. Uh, after salvation, what are you going to do? Are you going to just keep living the same way you lived before, which would be wrong? Or are you going to live in light of this new life that you have in Christ? In other words, are you going to be a disciple? Are you going to follow Jesus? And this is the example that we see of these five at the end of John chapter 1. And so in verse 38, Jesus turns around and he sees these two guys following him. And this would have been typical. Now, this may have been later in the day uh, as they're uh, following him around. This was typical of how rabbis during the second temple period would increase their following. They would find some students who wished to join their 
their school. Uh, sometimes they had a, a large school called the yeshiva, and this is likely what um, what Nicodemus had. He was likely the head of a particular school, not unlike uh, Gamaliel, who is training the Apostle Paul in the book of Acts. But here we have... Uh, these two and they're following Jesus at a respectable distance. They're not, they're not uh, pushing their way into his life and they're not uh, hiding in the background, but by going with him and listening at a close distance, they're indicating that they, by their actions, that they're interested in being disciples. And at this point, once a rabbi noticed that someone, that uh, someone was following him and was uh, interested in becoming a student of his, he could either accept them or reject them. And this is what's going on here when Jesus says, what do you seek in verse 38? Uh, what are you doing here? And they said to him, rabbi, which is to say, translated teacher. See, it's a student-teacher relationship. Uh, they said, where are you staying? Uh, we want to come with you. That's the implication. This was the uh, idiom of how this this uh, connection between a rabbi and student developed. And in verse 39, Jesus Jesus says, "Come and see." That was a form of that the rabbi would say to accept them uh, as his students. Come and follow me. If not, he would say, "It's none of your business uh, where I stay," and that would be a sign of rejection. So Jesus accepts them. And they came and saw where he was staying and remained with him that day. Now it was about the 10th hour. Now, according to a Jewish calendar, this would be about 10 o'clock in the morning. So we're then told who they are in verse 40. One of the two who heard John speak, that is John the Baptist, and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. Now, Andrew appears to be rather outgoing. Every time we find him mentioned in John, he's going out and bringing somebody to Jesus. So he seems pretty evangelistic, and he goes out, first of all, and he finds his own brother, Simon, and says, we have found the Messiah. We have found the Christ, Christos. We have found the Messiah. And so he brings him to Jesus. This tells us that these brothers are positive to the word of God. They've been following John the Baptist, and they are seeking the Messiah. Now they say, we have found him. Do you remember John was saying that he was near? Well, he's here. We found him. We know who he is. Come and join us. And so uh, he brought him to Jesus. In verse 32, when Jesus looked at him, that is at Simon, he identifies him with a new name, says Simon, the son of Jonah, Simon Bar-Jonah, or Simon, the son of John, that was their father, uh, you shall be called Kephas in the Hebrew, I mean, the Greek. Greek doesn't have a soft uh, sibilant, it's a K, it's a hard K. In the Greek, it's Kephas. You shall be called Kephas, which is translated a stone or a rock. This is uh, related to the Greek word also uh, Petros for Peter. Kephas is the Aramaic term that is equivalent to Peter, that is a rock or a stone. This would indicate something about his his character. Verse 43, we read, then the following day. So we had the first day when when uh, the uh, investigators came out and asked their uh, five questions of John the Baptist. Day two, uh, John the Baptist uh, identified Jesus as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Day three is he indicates Jesus as the Lamb of God and, and his two disciples. Peter, no, no, notice, excuse me, um, 
uh, Andrew, and there's one that isn't, he never names himself, and this is probably John, the writer of the gospel. He tended to not identify himself by name. So the first two are Andrew and John, and then Andrew goes to get his brother um, uh, Peter. And then the next day, the next day, this is day four then, uh, Jesus um, wanted to go to leave to go up to Galilee, and he found Philip. So the others came along to Jesus, but now Jesus seeks out Philip. Philip was from Bethsaida. Bethsaida was a fishing village not far from Capernaum on the sort of the northwest, uh, more north, just a little bit west of due north uh, shore of Galilee. Uh, and this is where Andrew and Peter live at this time. They will both move to, or at least Peter will move to Capernaum. And Philip is from Bethsaida, so the three of them know each other. And remember, he's also called John and Brother James, and there's an indication that they're cousins also on Mary's side. They're, they are cousins. So these disciples knew each other. They were from uh, villages that were close to each other. So uh, sometimes we don't really catch the fact that they're, they're not strangers to one another. They have all known each other, and they've been uh, followers of John the Baptist, so they are all positive. They've been, as it were, going to church together for a while and worshiping together, and so they have that in common. So Philip comes, and in John 45, we read, Philip found Nathanael and said to him, so Philip is like Andrew. He's, I, we, we found him. We found, I'm going to go tell somebody about, about Jesus. So he knows that he has a friend, Nathanael, who's seeking uh, the Messiah. is very positive. And he found, found Nathanael and said, We found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote. Uh, it's Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Well, we get an interesting response from Nathaniel. He doesn't say, oh, really? He says, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Because Nazareth is just this backwater little village of a couple hundred people, and it didn't have the greatest reputation. It was often thought of as uh, as being uh, uh, backward. Galilee itself was considered by those in Judea and those in Jerusalem as being somewhat backward. And, uh, um, uh, and in the region of Galilee, the most backward would be those from Nazareth. Uh, we all have places, geographical locations, that uh, get this kind of a reputation. Uh, when I first went up to Connecticut, uh, someone from Maine told me that uh, the story was that if you drove across the Maine border, your IQ would drop 50 points. Later on, I heard that apply to West Virginia. We've heard that apply down here in Houston to Pasadena or to Arkansas, uh, not to offend anybody, but just that we all know that these places pick up these kinds of reputations. Well, Nazareth had that reputation. So Nathaniel says, wait a minute, how can anything good come out of Nazareth? What he's implying is that the Old Testament prophecies of Messiah never mention Nazareth, but they do mention Bethlehem. So why Nazareth? Well, Philip's not going to get into a discussion with him, and he just says, well, come and see. You come for yourself. You evaluate the evidence yourself. Now, then we have a very interesting interchange that takes place. Uh, Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him in verse 47 and said, Behold an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Now, this is a pun. 
that's taking place here, and Jesus is catching his attention this way by by doing this. Uh, Israel, the name Israel, was the name that God gave to that God gave to Jacob in the Old Testament at a place that was later described as as Peniel and uh, as a place where Jacob met God face to face. He wrestled with the angel, and the angel struck him on the hip, and after that he limped. But it was a, a place where he is given a new name as the one who strove with God, the one who, uh, the one who wrestled with God. And so Jesus uses the word Israel here because the t- new name for Jacob was, was uh, uh, Israel, but Jacob's name before Jacob was one who was known as a deceiver. He was very cunning and he was deceitful, but really there's only one main uh, episode where he is a deceiver. In Genesis chapter 27, we have the story where Jacob, uh, where, where Isaac the father is going to be passing on, uh, the blessing to his two sons, uh, Jacob and Esau, and Esau is the uh, elder of the two, and Isaac was to receive uh, was to give the blessing to Esau, but Jacob wanted the blessing. So Jacob, uh, at the at the uh, uh, instigation of his of his mother, dresses up like Esau, puts on fur because he was smooth skinned, whereas uh, Esau was hairy, and he puts on an animal skin so he smells like the outdoors, and goes through this whole charade so that his father, who Isaac, who's, who's almost blind, uh, won't realize who he is, and that he will bring him his favorite uh, his favorite meal of uh, venison and. Um, various other things that had been cooked that were the result of, uh, of hunting. And so then Isaac would give him the blessing instead of, of Esau. So there's a story of deceit there that is, that Jacob is known for. Later he uh, has his name changed to uh, Israel. So in this little pun, when Nathaniel says this, Nathaniel comes up, he is saying, ah, an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. You're, you're not deceitful. Now that caught Nathaniel's attention. Look at how Nathaniel responds. He says, how do you know me? How do you, you know, he said, how do you know me? How do you know this? And Jesus then answered and said, before Philip called you when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Now according to the Mishnah, uh, according to the teaching of rabbis at this time, we say, well, what in the world is this thing with the fig tree? Because as soon as he says, I saw you under the fig tree, then um, uh, Nathaniel's response is, you're the son of God, you're the king of Israel. Now, if I were to say, well, I saw you sitting out under your pecan tree this morning, would you respond by saying, oh, you must be the Messiah of Israel? What's going on here? Well, what's going on is in the Mishnah, the, the best place to sit and read your Bible in the morning and to meditate on the word was under a fig tree. This was what is uh, what the rabbis suggested. So when Jesus says, I saw you under the fig tree, the subtext is, I saw you meditating on the word this morning. Now, what was what was the passage that that Nathaniel was meditating on? Well, the passage that he's meditating on is from this very section 
of, of Genesis, Genesis 27 and 28. This would have been part of the uh, Jewish parasha every uh, Sunday. They divide up the law into sections as to what, what is read. And this is the section that precedes Pentecost. Remember, Jesus is, is uh, or precedes Passover. Passover is going to be in John chapter 2. And so this pre- is a reading that precedes Passover. Uh, Nathaniel would have been reading this. And so when Jesus said, look, you're an Israelite, but you're not deceitful like Jacob, uh, he's just been reading that, that context. And so what, he, what Jesus is letting Philip know is, I, I, it's not just like what you'll read in a lot of commentaries. It's, it's not just that you were, that I'm omniscient and I saw where you were sitting this morning, but you were, I know that you were sitting under the fig tree. You were meditating on Genesis 27 and 28. And I'm letting you know that I knew what you were thinking about, what you were reading, what you were uh, focusing on, on this morning. And so then you get this uh, response um, from Philip where he says immediately, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. He knows by the fact that Jesus knows precisely what he was doing that morning that this is not something that any ordinary human would know that is the product of omniscience, and he identifies him as the Son of God. And so Jesus kind of chuckles and says, Well, because I said to you I saw the uh, under the fig tree, do you believe? He didn't add anything to it. Jesus is saying it's just faith alone. So you believe just on the basis of that evidence. Trust me, Jesus says, you'll see greater things than these. And he says to him in verse 51, truly, truly, uh, I say to you, hereafter you shall see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. Now this is also from Genesis 28. As Jacob the chiseler, the deceiver, is leaving from, uh, he has to flee from his home in, um, at, at Bethel. He has to leave and go, go off to be with his relatives in Haran because Esau wants to kill him. Uh, and so he has to leave and, and he's sent away from the home. Uh, and on his first night, as he, excuse me, his, for, he left the house in the south. His first night as he's up near Bethel, he lies down and he has a dream. And in Gen- this is recorded in Genesis 28, 11, and 12. And in that dream, we're told about the stairway to heaven in the Old Testament, J- his, Jacob's ladder. And he saw, sees a ladder uh, reaching down from heaven, and the angels of God are ascending and descending upon it. And what this is an indication is, because God tells him afterwards that uh, he is reconfirming the covenant with Jacob, and he is telling Jacob that it is through you and your descendants I will be revealing myself, the, that fact that angels are coming down, angels are instruments of revelation, I will be revealing myself through you, and you will be an instrument of blessing uh, to the world. Well, when Jesus has this encounter with Nathaniel, he goes on and he makes this statement, he, and, and he says, Most assuredly, I say to you, and it's a plural verb here, he's not talking specifically of Nathaniel, he's talking to all the, the disciples, I, will, you, I say to you all, hereafter you all will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. So he's alluding to the Genesis 28 passage again and saying something more about it, but now he is saying that you as my disciples will benefit from the revelation that I will give you 
that will be even greater and will benefit all of your people. But the point of this is that he is identifying who he is to to these disciples, and they receive him. They accept him. Uh, in John 2.11, we'll go on to read after the signs in uh, Cana of Galilee that his disciples believed in him. Their faith was increasing as a result of seeing the miracles. In John 2.23, he goes to Jerusalem. Jesus goes to Jerusalem for Passover, and many believed in his name when they saw the signs which he did. Salvation is by faith. Now, in conclusion, I want to briefly look at Luke 4. We've seen those who receive Jesus, but in Luke 4, we see those who reject Jesus. Luke chapter 4, beginning in verse 14. Luke chapter 4, beginning in verse 14. Now, Jesus goes, after he spends a year in Judea, he will then head back to Galilee. This happens when John the Baptist is arrested and put in prison by Herod Antipas. We'll talk about that later on. Uh, He's arrested. John the Baptist is arrested. This is a signal uh, for Jesus to get out of the limelight down in the south in Judea, and he heads back to Galilee. And he goes to his hometown of Nazareth. And he comes to Nazareth, and he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, And he stood up to read. Now, this is all perfectly timed because the parashah, the reading that came out of the law, was usually accompanied by readings that came from the uh, prophets. And so he's going to read publicly, and as was the custom in the synagogue, you stand up to read, and then you sit down to teach or explain what you have read. This is what we see going on in the passage. He's handed the book of the prophet Isaiah, and when he had opened the book, he found a place where it was written. And so we see that he begins to read in verses 18 and 19. He reads from, and this is a quote from Isaiah 61, 1 and 2. Now I want you to notice I have 61, 1 through 3 up here on the, on the screen. He stops reading in the middle of verse 2. Now of course there's no versification in the scroll at that time. Uh, it's just one passage, but he stops at a significant point. He begins, the Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me. That's the verb Mashiach, uh, anointed me to preach. This is obviously a messianic passage to preach good tidings to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. And then he closes the scroll, rolls it up, and sits down. And then when he sat down, we're told in verse 20 uh, that all the eyes are fixed on him because now sitting down means I'm going to explain it to you. And his explanation is simple in verse 21. Today this, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Now, if you look at this passage, what happens after he stopped is it goes on to say the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn, to console those who mourn in Zion, to give them beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness. Notice the vengeance of our God, those who mourn, uh, ashes, mourning, uh, spirit of heaviness, This is indicative of what happens at the end of the tribulation when the Messiah sets up his kingdom and brings in the times of refreshing. 
Now, Jesus is just talking about the first coming. That's what his focus is in verses 1 through the first line of verse 2. There is a gap of at least 2,000 years between the fulfillment of the first part of this prophecy and the fulfillment of the second part of the prophecy. And what Jesus is doing is he reads from this first part of the reading, and then he stops and he says, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Now, the people don't want to believe that. Say, who is this? This is Jesus. He grew up here. Uh, we know here. Isn't this Joseph's son? Verse 22. And Jesus' response to them in verse 23 is, you will surely say this proverb to me, physician, heal yourself. What we've heard done in Capernaum, do here also. Why aren't you doing these things here? In other words, this is a sign of their rejection of him. And so in verse 24, he says, Assuredly, I say to you, no prophet is accepted in his own country. Now, remember earlier, going back when I first started, and I was skimming through John 1 through 4, at the end of John 4, this is stated again. Jesus goes back to Nazareth, goes back to Galilee, but there's a problem because no prophet is honored in his own country. That's where this fits together. And he says that, and then he gives two examples, one from uh, one from Elijah and one from Elisha. Uh, in verse 25, he says, in, Elisha, in, in Elijah's time, there were a lot of widows in Israel. But when the three and a half years of drought came and there was a famine, uh, Elijah was sent to Zarephath in Sidon, a Gentile, and he ministered there. Why? Because he wasn't honored in Israel. So God sent him to the Gentiles. And then the second example in verse 27, there were many lepers in Israel also in the time of Elisha, but he didn't heal those lepers. He healed a, a Gentile, a Syrian. And as soon as he, Jesus is indicating by this that, that he's not going to be, what he's indicating is you guys don't want to accept me. So if you don't accept me like you didn't accept Elijah and Elisha, then the blessing's going to go to the Gentiles. And this just angered them tremendously in verse 29 he rose uh, they rose up and they they were or verse 28 they were filled with wrath they rose up in verse 29 they thrust him out of the city they took him down to the brow of the hill over a cliff on which the the city was built so they could throw him off the cliff in order to kill him they are in a rage this is what happens when you're rejecting the truth and the truth is so real in front of you that you can't stand it. You just react in tremendous anger. And so then we're told, verse 30, then passing through the midst of them, he went his way. And so what we see here in these two episodes that I focused on is that there are two responses to Jesus, one of rejection and one of acceptance. When we, the rejection of Jesus as Messiah, the rejection of Jesus as Savior leaves us in a position of condemnation. But there's only one solution, that is to accept him or to believe in him, and then we have eternal life. That's the important decision. But the decision after that is then what? And that's the challenge of discipleship. And this is what we'll see next time in Matthew chapter 4, is that Jesus, a year after initially meeting James and John and Andrew and Philip and Nathaniel, then comes to them and says, um, Follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Are we willing to take up the challenge to be a true disciple, a true learner, and applier of what Jesus teaches? 
with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study your word. We pray that you might challenge us with what we've learned today, that the question applies to us each and every day. Are we willing to be a disciple, a learner of you, not just learning the word but applying it in our lives, letting your word transform the way we think and the way we act and what we do? Father, I pray that you would uh, make this clear to anyone here this morning who's unsure of their salvation or uncertain of their eternal life that the only basis for eternal life is Jesus Christ and the issue is to believe on him, to accept or receive him into our life, to accept what he has done for us on our behalf, and that by believing in him we might have eternal life. Now, Father, we pray that you would challenge us with these things this morning. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.